the FT. Entrepreneurs challenge the rules and change the game. We should know. At Mishkondorea, we've worked closely with all kinds of entrepreneurs, developing innovative tools to help protect and accelerate their plans. Mishkondorea, it's business, but it's personal. Welcome to the second podcast in the Financial Times' Deals and Dealmakers series. I'm Anusha Sakui, the FT's Mergers and Acquisitions Correspondent. If there's one resounding chorus from financial advisors these days, it is that deals are hard to do. Adding to the uncertainty around the direction of global markets and the economy is increased regulatory scrutiny on the business of M&A. In the UK, the world's second biggest market for M&A after the US, the takeover panel that regulates the industry has reformed its rules for deal-making. The question is what impact those rules are having eight months on. With me in the studio is James Palmer, global head of law firm Herbert Smith's corporate business, and Jonathan Rowley, co-head of European M&A at investment bank UBS. Thanks to both of you for joining me. It's been a short time since the new rules came in last September, but James, what changes are already in evidence in the way deals are being done? The the first comment I'd make is that the the volume of public takeovers in the UK is still pretty low. And so I think while there are some trends beginning to emerge, it's hard to say definitively which trends we're going to see sustaining because I think the volume uh, hasn't been large enough to define that. But I think the first point I'd draw out is, uh, interestingly, there have been fewer leaks about uh, public deals in advance of them. And I think that uh, the takeover panel has introduced new restrictions uh, on bidders uh, in terms of tight timetables and so on from leaks. And I think that uh, may be contributing to the reduction in leaks in advance. I have to say, I think the FSA's strong crackdown on uh, pre-leaking of deals is also a very significant factor on that. But that's one I would identify at this stage. And Jonathan, are there any other sort of changes that you're already seeing happening to uh, to deals? Yes, uh, there are several. But to pick up further on this first theme that James has identified, probably the most important change that was introduced by the takeover panel was a mandatory 28-day put-up-or-shut-up, which I think we'll refer to as PUSU henceforth, deadline uh, on bidders when they are named following a leak. And going into the rule change, I think as practitioners, we all were concerned that that might make some transactions difficult to do simply because 28 days is insufficient time for most bidders to conduct their work. And certainly that would be true for any financial sponsor bidder who needs leveraged finance. The way that rule has played out has been interesting. And my observation would be that boards of target companies have been very prepared to ask the panel for extensions to that 28-day deadline. And in fact, there have been uh, many instances where extensions have been granted, and it has become something of the norm for that deadline to be extended. And consequently, the, the market hasn't been too adversely affected by this new rule. On the contrary, I think there's a case that extensions have become so much the norm that prior to this rule change, when target boards could decide whether or not to ask for a PUSU deadline, they in fact had more power because it wasn't a norm for there to be an extension. And consequently, when a deadline was set, it tended to have more teeth than might be true today. James? My perception is that it, that it is right that there are a lot of PUSU extensions being given and bidders are being given more time. But I have certainly sat in board meetings where the fact of a tight timetable 
and the fact that the new regime has influenced a target board to be more robust in dismissing an approach that it's not interested in pursuing right at the outset. So I think the whole change of tone of the new regime has made target boards that want to deflect people who they think are not really credible or this is not the right time to send them away. Now, that doesn't always work, but I think I have certainly seen some increase in robustness of target boards at the margin in some of the things we've been involved with. I agree with that. And I think an instance of it working well, perhaps, is in the Piedmont bid for Mitchells and Butler, where instantaneously on on that bid coming out, the 28-day deadline was set, where it might have been somewhat later otherwise, which led to a very low offer being withdrawn some four days before the first PUSU deadline. So on occasion, I think it's been effective, and I think it has made target boards feel a little more confident But really, it hasn't prevented takeover activity from occurring in the way that we might have feared going into it. On that point, James, do you think that some of these restrictions on timetable, some of the uh, need to out yourself as a bidder or or for a company to confirm talks earlier than, than maybe previously had happened, do you think that has put off bidders? I, I do. I think that there's a difference between strategic corporates and between financial sponsors. And I think that strategic corporates, it it makes no difference at all, unless it's a highly leveraged deal. And to what extent they're put off by the leveraged finance markets and to what extent they're put off by the new regime is debatable. But both have an effect, but the market's probably more than the new regime. Why strategic bidders? Strategic bidders are in a better position because they uh, typically have cash, they have synergies, or they have value that can be given. They don't need the same level of diligence, and they're not going to bring the same degree of risk over the financing to the transaction. So their ability to execute is typically higher than with a lot of financial sponsors, with a shorter timetable. And I think that gives them some advantage. One of the issues that has come up that I have heard from bankers is that foreign bidders in particular, say maybe US uh, corporates, have been put off by the level of disclosure that's necessary if you're going to target a UK company. Have you seen that? Yes, I I think that foreign bidders and uh, sponsors, as James had pointed out, both feel somewhat deterred from moving forwards with a bid for a UK target. Both of those categories of bidder generally at the outset of looking at a UK target feel less certain as to whether they will be able to move forward with a formal offer than, let's say, a UK in-market competitor who will generally have a very good understanding of the company that they're seeking to buy. Therefore, at the point in time at which disclosure is likely through a leak, their confidence that they will move ahead and complete the deal is much lower, and therefore the downside risk of being exposed and yet not being able to carry through and move forward with a formal offer for very good reasons that they haven't been able to get access and do the work is greater for that kind of bidder. And therefore the equation when they're thinking about the risk versus the upside of getting the deal done is a little different for that kind of buyer. I mean, if, if I can add to that, I think that um, US in the, in the US, if there's a rumor about a, a US bidder for another US company, they don't have to make public announcements about it. So they have always found the old UK regime where there could be a public announcement requirement quite challenging and quite difficult. The heightened triggers that were introduced by the panel in September for leaks, which force bidders to be named 
uh, if there is a leak or a rumour, rather than just have to, uh, a report or an announcement which didn't name the bidder, are seen as a big deterrent by a lot of them. And and what also came with that was a mandatory six-month shutout of those bidders if there was such a leak. And that, again, makes them more nervous about actively pursuing transactions. Having said that, some still are. What do you think um, maybe the changes panel seeks to pursue, if, if it does, when it comes to review the, you know, the, the first impacts of, of, of the changes? My, my starting presumption is that the panel won't, won't want to review very much because they spent a lot of time developing this new regime. Uh, there was a political context to it all, and... Um, uh, the panel, I'm sure, would say that it reached its own conclusions on what the rules should be, but but it's it's very obvious to anyone who's been familiar with it that there was an awful lot of uh, political pressure for change, which the panel at least had to consider. I think that uh, so I think the panel will start reluctant to make material changes, but on the other hand, they always listen, and I'm sure they will listen. And I personally hope that they will revisit the mandatory naming of all bidders who are potential offerors at the outset, because I still am of the view which I was in trying to persuade the panel not to introduce that, that, that it risks deterring bidders who targets actually want to be around. Jonathan, are you advising companies in a different way or, or private equity bidders in a different way than before as a result of these changes? Yes, I, I think that they have had an impact on the advice that we give. In particular, secrecy has become even more vital. The number of people that are aware of a forthcoming bid has been reduced even further. The But within that small group, the quantity of work and the attempt to get more confident of your ability to move forward on the basis of internal work, internal diligence, has increased in order to have a much higher degree of confidence at the time that any leak may occur. Because bidders feel that they face a very difficult decision at that moment in time as to whether to walk away or move forwards. In addition, the effect of the new rules has broadly been to improve the position of target boards and ensure even more resolutely than was the case before that ultimately the highest value bid wins in any process. And various of the rule changes have had that effect. For instance, the removal of break fees and the outlawing of agreements um, with the offeror in relation to matching rights, implementation agreements, and so on. These are and basically any rules that could seen as being a board, a target board, inducing or support or encouraging a, one particular bid, favouring one particular bid. Correct. And consequently... It is the case even more than ever, and this was always quite true in the UK market, that ultimately the highest value bid is exceptionally likely to win. And consequently, playing sometimes a longer game and re- recognising that in a competitive situation, some of the merits of being ahead of the game early have gone, and that instead it is more important to be the highest value at the end affect some of the tactics that we've been talking about with bidders. Can I ask one quick final question? It's a yes and no question. Mm. Do you think these changes will uh, change the UK's position as the number two market globally for M&A, James? No. Jonathan? No, I think that in the end, the UK continues to be a very open market for takeovers, and that 
in general is a good thing. It ensures that the UK market is perceived to have uh, – it's one of the measures that ensures that the UK market is seen to have high standards of corporate governance and is a good place for companies to list, which means that in the UK market we continue to have a, a very large number of strong firms who themselves are in a position to embark on acquisitive M&A growth. The UK market is clearly one that will continue to fascinate us, whatever happens. With that, I have to say, unfortunately, it's all we have time for. Remember, you can access the full Deals and Dealmakers report at ft.com forward slash dealmakers. Thanks again to my guests, James Palmer and Jonathan Rowley. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.